if I could wave a wand, like you said, I'd, I'd like there to be philosophically inclined, sophisticated philosophically inclined people in the labs of the technologies that are going to define the next, you know, 20 years of our lives. Hello, everyone. My name is Stephen Parton, and you are listening to The Feedback Loop on Singularity Radio, where we keep you up to date on the latest technological trends and how they're impacting the transformation of consciousness and culture. This week, my guest is Christian Madsburg, who is the professor of applied humanities at the New School in New York and co-founder of the consultancy Red Associates. In this episode, we primarily discuss the ideas that are put forth in Christian's latest book, since making the power of the humanities and the age of the algorithm. Amongst other things, this includes exploring some of Christian's key principles, such as how we should emphasize our focus on cultures instead of individuals, how we should look at people's experiences in their natural environment rather than in the laboratory, and how we should look at thick data, which includes things like context and people's passions, instead of thin data, which just includes cold, hard facts. While most of this conversation explores the shortcomings of a data-obsessed decision-making process, we do start off the podcast with a conversation that Christian and I had started before recording that deals with his latest fascination, attention. So without further ado, let's jump into that conversation. Everyone, please welcome to the feedback loop, Christian Madsbjerg. I like to keep it casual, and if we find a topic that's really um, interesting to us, I like to run with that. So I'd love to hear more about your thoughts on attention right now. Uh, how does that relate to your work? Um, the way we talk about attention today is um, it's very much about focus and concentration of our aware, sort of awake awareness. But I think there's a much broader uh, type of attention, uh, which, has, which is much more blurry. And it has to do with how we are familiar with something. So we are familiar with streets. And that's why we can operate in them without undivided attention. If we have undivided attention to a specific car or a specific part of the street, uh, we might end up running into people and or um, driving into things. Um, so all sort of focused, concentrated, undivided attention has this background um, that is the context of it. So there's the sort of a, a ground and a figure, and the figure only works on the background of a ground. So when you see a triangle, you see a triangle, not the sides of the triangle, right? Uh, so our attention might work differently in that way. It's much more blurry and viscous um, in the sense that it's not clear. It's, it's uh, sort of almost like a panoptic kind of, um, kind of attention that, you know, if you see great sports people, if you see a great basketball player, a great football player, they seem to pay attention to everything and nothing at the same time. I think a great investor pays attention to everything and nothing at the same time. And they have a much broader, much more, we call it sometimes intuition, but I think it's better to call it familiarity. Um, 
And that familiarity is based on um, our lives and how we, how we are learning about things. So, um, so, so describing attention as one thing, um, which is certainly an important one, is not accurate. And I, and I think there's, there's a philosophical tradition that deals with this. So the tradition of phenomenology that started with Martin Heidegger, but particularly uh, a French philosopher called Maurice Merleau-Ponty describes how perception and attention, how seeing works, um, how, how we see, um, literally how we see and how we listen and how you could say impressions from our surroundings are perceived and how it's not empirical in the sense of uh, in the sense of the actual um, visual input that hits our retina or the sound that hits our eardrums um, are always on a background of something. So if you hear a F sharp on a piano, it depends on very much on which kind of style that F sharp is in, depending on how we listen to it, right? So, so if you if you listen to an F sharp and has and it has your undivided attention, you wouldn't understand whether it's within jazz or or uh, or uh, you know classical music. If an opera singer sings it, it's quite different than if a if a you know it's song on Broadway. So, so the an F sharp is of course a sensory impression, but the way we experience it is on the background of musical styles and experiences and history and all kinds of other things. So paying attention, undivided, concentrated, focused on the sound waves of an F sharp would completely misunderstand the world of meaning that we, that we live in. So the same sensory impression can be vastly different things, even though scientifically, a machine can't measure that. Right? Is this is this same train of thought kind of what's got you started with Red Associates and the books that you've written since co-founding the company? This idea that if you just have this stimuli without context that you're missing the bigger picture? Exactly. Yeah, so I did I never I mean, I didn't start a comp I started a couple of companies now and I never had a plan or a vision or a strategy. It was just stumbling into it. And um, sort of confident in that it would work, but, but never knowing that whether it would be the case or not and sort of accepting if it didn't, then, you know, I had to try again. But it was always on a particular philosophy. It was, it was the idea that humans can be understood not fully, but largely based on observation. So looking at them, and that's not just statistical observation, it's also in context observation of their meaningful world. And that's what good anthropology is. It doesn't happen much in anthropology, but when it does, it's glorious. Um, it's what the kind of philosophical texts that I grew up on, uh, not grew up on, but were excited about um, uh, what they are about. So how our perception and experience work um, and then use that to inform how we make things. Um, so how do we, when we make vehicles or software or, you know, uh, music, you can understand 
that background upon which things are meaningful to us and, and so on. And in that way, make better things and imagine better things. So, so it's just a, a particular view of humans. Um, that is not the only one, but one that um, I understand and feel comfortable in and, and so on. So I think, I think you're right. That it was certainly informing it. Yeah. Well, so you, you started Red Associates 15 years ago. You wrote Moment of Clarity in 2014. You wrote Sense Making in 2017. And all of these have that central theme of the social sciences uh, guiding business uh, and strategy. Did you have of a specific background then? Was it, th was it that early love of philosophy that got you motivated to engage the business world in this way? Or were there other ideas that motivated you to work on these subjects? It was kind of the other way around. It was, I needed to make a living. <laughs> and yeah. somehow, and there are different ways you could use the kind of things I was interested in and knew a little bit about. And one was you could be an academic. And, and that wasn't, didn't look very attractive. Um, when I was in the middle of it, it looked as if people weren't enjoying themselves very much. Um, and then you could be a writer, right? You could, you could be a journalist or something like that. Um, and that was in the middle of seeing the media world as, you know, the 20th century kind of media institutions just falling apart. And it was only the beginning of it, but it was pretty clear where, where it would go, you know, the internet, was around and the logic of the internet seems to fit quite well with completely changing that in picture. So I thought, why would you bet on a, on a really bad horse in that sense? Um, and then what was left was trying to figure out something on my own and then sort of stumbling into companies. I didn't know anything about companies before that, but it was quite obvious that companies are extraordinarily resourceful um, resourced well in a way that universities weren't and the media world certainly wasn't resourced in that way and suddenly you could do things that were much longer term and you could imagine things that millions and millions of people would you know would de would be relating to or somehow be meaningful in their lives so I worked a lot with Samsung at that time and reimagining the TV and what how we how we deal with what we today call content. Um, we used to call it TV and movies and so on. But, you know, imagine how we change our behavior around that. Um, or, you know, when the smartphone came around and everybody was laughing at it, they certainly were at Nokia and Samsung and other places. And, you know, reimagine or try to imagine what that meant for people. So, so you could both live a sort of, I found that you could live a, uh, uh, you could make a living and lead an, a life of ideas or a sort of an intellectual life um, at the same time, which was what I wanted. So it was more like a stumbling into it, needing it, and then um, somehow finding a way in, in it. Yeah, I love that. You say that sense making is, I believe, a deep nuanced engagement with culture, language, and history. Can you explain a little bit what you mean by that? Yes. 
Let's take history. Um, history is a collapsing um, thing. It's people are not interested in studying it. Um, parents are not interested in investing in their children studying history. We look down upon history today as, as if, you know, that's kind of a loser topic um, in financially in every way. Yet, I think the skills you get when you are a historian or study history, art history or anything like that are very practical. Um, not only, I mean, the normal story is that if you forget the past, you're condemned to repeat it, um, which I think was Santayana that said that. But that's one which is pretty crucial, right? Understanding what it was like to be um, fighting during the First World War or what it was like in the 50s or in the 80s informs many things that we sort of misunderstand today, I think. But the skill you have as a historian is you, put, you can put things together. Right? So a statistician can put numbers together and have very sophisticated ways of doing that. Um, and that's very helpful. But a, but a historian can put together, let's say you want to you understand what it was like in the punk movement you know, during the late 70s. You can put together music, visual things, videos, uh, notes, critique, um, um, the reactions to it the reviews of it, um, the places where it happened, which are all things you can't put into a spreadsheet and add, add it all up. You, you have to somehow interpret it and try to put yourself into, into that world of you know, a scene that happened in London and in New York and many other places at that time and, and understand it, understand that world. And I would imagine or I think that's also understanding that is also a way to maybe understand parts of the future. You understand the structure of a of a style of music and how it disrupts, you know, the way you think about things and the emotion that comes out of it. You can then use those tools to understand the world of cars or cities or the lives of teenagers or you know and so on. And doing that is good for understanding what to it is like to live today, but it's also an understanding you could use to not predict the future, but imagine futures because we don't know what the future will be. And anybody that says so, you know, you should look skeptical at. So, um, so you could you can sort of creatively imagine things if you have the skill sets of a historian. So that's what I mean. It's it's not that you know you have to engage with the history of communication and phones, if you want to imagine the future of phones in some way or another, but certainly the tool set can be used. Um, and that's very much what I try to say. Yeah. It's, it sounds to me like when you're saying this, that history in this sense gives you a, the ability to construct a map and understand how pieces fit together and the problem perhaps that we're in and that you touch on in sense making might be the fact that when there's so much new stuff coming your way from algorithms and data, you don't actually build a complete map because you're constantly taking in the stuff that the algorithm feeds you and it's distorting the image. And I, it seems like that would be disorienting. Does that sound accurate? Uh, it can. Mm -hmm. And certainly at the state it's in right now, it can. I mean, if you look at the pandemic, 
I wish that AI could have done more, you know, in terms of predicting what on earth was happening and what, what was going to happen. And, you know, in the end, we informed policy and behavior based on good old fashioned statistics, right? There wasn't much AI involved in how we did things. You can then say, is, was it too little? Did we not rely on it enough? I don't know, but certainly there was a complete absence of it. And I was called in the beginning of the pandemic, people called me sort of out of the blue saying, we've made hundreds of millions of dollars in investments in, in, in predictive algorithms and, and what, what they called AI. Uh, yet we have to scrap it now because it didn't predict anything and we don't know how to use it. Um, we can't see a use of it right now, maybe in the future, but right now I need to talk to a social scientist. You know, have this happened before? When it happened, what did people do? And it turns out the situation isn't new. You know, it's happened many times before that we've been scared of a particular bacteria or disease in some kind or another. And, and there are patterns of behavior and, and so on. So, so you can use that to help inform, you know, major decisions in very large companies. And so, so I think with algorithms that they have, at least the way they are now, have a limit and um, work to be done. Um, so, so I'm not against AI in any way. I think it's an exciting technology and I think it might have very large consequences for even what it means to be human. Um, but in the state of affairs, it's, it was oversold um, and it was oversold particularly by very large IT firms um, that, you know, something like Watson was supposed to predict everything and fix our broken healthcare system and cure cancer and lo lots of things. And it just turned out, mm, not yet. Yeah. What is that? What does that struggle look like to you? Because the subtitle of your book is the power of humanities uh, in the age of the algorithm. How is the relationship between the humanities and the algorithms playing out right now? Do you think that we're losing parts of ourselves or war we are not performing at our best because of our over-reliance on algorithms? Um, I think the humanities are collapsing. Hmm. I think we are underinvesting. We are taking away resources from the humanities. I think kids are being guided away from it. And that's partly the humanities' own fault. Um, but it's also not good. Um, I think the social sciences have also painted itself, not large part of the social sciences have painted itself into a corner, um, which means that there's uh, two things. I think there's an over-reliance of no, that's not an override. There's an overselling of al algorithms as helpful with everything. Um, not just parts, but everything. Um, and, I, and I think there's an under-reliance on the interaction between what we can broadly call the humanities and understanding of humans and our worlds and our history and our songs and our you know, emotional states. Um, under-reliance on that. And the interaction between let's call it software engineering or computer science and humanities is 
would be very helpful. Um, and I think the way you want to feed algorithms, the way you want, want to interpret outcomes needs context. And without that context, just relying on the machine doing it on, it, on its own is not reflective enough in terms of both, both limiting uh, negative consequences and creatively imagining you know, great things it could do. So that's probably the way I see it. I'm excited about the technology. I don't understand it beyond simple. No, I understand the concepts. I understand the fundamental statistics of it and the mathematical ideas behind it, but I would never be able to do it um, and would never claim to. But I think I understand humans a little bit and can see the difference between the two. Yeah, in a time where it feels like we have so much energy towards authentic marketing, towards people gravitating towards, you know, YouTubers and influencers and people podcasts. who are just in podcasts. Yeah, like it, 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 we're we're becoming attracted to I think these very humanized versions of the business world, and yet it seems like a lot of companies and tech companies as well aren't really making that shift why why do you think there is such a hesitance to i don't i guess just be human i mean is it just a fear of losing profits or uh being vulnerable like what do you think is happening here um so you ask about marketing just just the um i guess the business world's hesitance to embrace the social sciences to embrace the more human side of things yeah um i think partly it's because the people that run many companies and particularly in silicon valley are not from the humanities and feel um distant to it um i think they were excited about computers and less about maybe novels when they grew up and fantastic. I mean, good for them. But I think, so, so there's that. There's also the humanities have gone into a very political space, right? So a lot of the study of history has a very political slant to it. And the same with anthropology and sociology and many other things that that there are there's a particular framework that is uh, applied to everything and that framework is fundamentally negative to the business world and the world of commerce and if you come with that attitude to someone that might not be very interested in, in that area and needs to be excited about it. If you come with that attitude that is not helpful, but is talked to talked about as critical thinking. It's not always critical. It's, it's not it's critical, but it's not always independent, you could say. Um, then why would you on earth would you want to work with someone like that? You know, it just creates conflict um, and isn't very helpful. So I think there's this sort of dual problem of supply and demand that supply is not trying to make itself available and demand is fundamentally skeptical for reasons that I, I understand. Um, 
So, but when it happens, when you can connect a great engineer and a great, you know, philosopher, they can see more than they could alone. Um, and the, what the philosopher gets is the ability to make things, right? And what the, what the engineer gets is the ability to see what it is when you're making, let's say, technology for surgery, you know, understanding health is a, you know, human health and healing, how we heal, how we deal with mm, diseases and how families you know, deal with diseases can be helpful if you want to design the machines or the technology for exactly that. So, so it's just, when it happens, it's magical. When it doesn't, I understand why. So Yeah. Are there any great examples of that relationship that you can point to in, in the business world, any companies or uh, moments of innovation where that happened? I mean, the classic example is, of course, the former Apple CEO saying that Apple is the crossroads of technology and humanities, hmm. um, which includes aesthetic, right? It includes beauty. Um, and beauty is yet still difficult to capture in algorithms. Um, that can be beautiful algorithms in terms of how they're constructed, that the code is great, um, but is, is, a, is a beautiful thing. There's such thing as a gorgeous line of code, um, but, but that's not what they meant. I think, I think that's one example. Uh, I think um, a lot of uh, trying to deal with the tech lash or the backlash on tech is now including um, thoughts about ethics, thought of, thoughts about societies and democracy and so on. And a lot of that input uh, comes from people that know about those things. So I think there's also a sort of a reckoning. Um, I think the whole uh, the whole tradition, you can call it now, because it's probably started in the 80, 1980s, um, of user experience or customer experience, or you could even say human experience, is comes out of a social science tradition of observation. So the ability to look. And I think when, let's say a big search firm, a very large company that primarily relies on search are looking into what their video platform, let's say, um, is doing and what is should be allowed on it and what the limits of what should happen there. They are also looking to um, studies about the people that might put up things that aren't, you know, that we shouldn't see as certainly our kids shouldn't see. So lots is going on now from the focus only on technology to the focus of technology as it's placed in society. Um, so I think that's another good example. You know, a company like Samsung um, has at its heart technology and manufacturing, but there is no project, there's no major product coming out of there that's not sensitive to culture and aesthetics and beauty. Um, whether you like it or not, it's, um, it's certainly what they're trying. Um, so I think the, uh, the whole focus on design is a, you know, a question of 
of how engineering products, engineer, well-engineered or engineered products live in our life um, beyond sort of banal marketing talk uh, is, a, is a, a combination of that. Yeah, you mentioned there briefly with Samsung, the idea of culture, and it makes me think of your five principles that you mentioned in sense-making. And I, uh, I believe the first principle is culture and not individuals. What does that um, principle mean to you? Well, that's important to me. So I'm actually not very interested in individuals. I, I, don't, I don't find individuals very interesting. Um, I think it's not... Uh, there is there is this assumption in a lot of marketing and a lot of um, trying to get input into a company that is about asking people what they think. So we spend $25, 30000000000 billion a year in the world on asking people what they think. So that would be surveys and questionnaires and focus groups and so on, where the assumption is that we know what we want. And and that is not the case. I mean, it is sometimes, but most of the time, times we can't imagine the future and we don't have a direct access to our needs, whatever they might be. And so asking us is not the best way to look at us because we don't have access to our wants and needs and desires. And um, we don't, we don't, I don't know how I ended up, you know, here. It just happened. And it was a series of not aware, not, you know, rational, not linear decisions that just ended up like that. And when you ask, when you figure, when you look at most people, that's the case. Um, we might rationalize it, but that's often just a fiction we create. So if you want to understand people, you have to observe us and observe us with sort of sk the skill of a historian, let's say. And there you see that humans are not islands. We interact with others and we adjust to others in everything we do. So when you, you know, an example is when you move to New York, like I did 10, 12 years ago, you see things that you don't see after you lived here for a while. So one thing that you end up doing for instance, in a you know, in an elevator, the only the only thing in an elevator I have, the only place I've seen that the close button on the elevator is worn out because people so panicking sort of want to get two seconds ahead is in New York City. I haven't seen that other places. Uh, so just that is something that creeps into you. So now I do it after having lived here for a while. And I have to sort of stop myself and arrest myself for getting the people around me to do things that I wouldn't otherwise have done. Um, the same in traffic, people drive in a particular style in California, as opposed to what they do in France. And as a driver, you just adopt that thing. Um, the way you stand in an elevator, if you look at people going into an elevator, you'd see People occupy one corner, then they occupy another corner. Then you go in the middle, then people get nervous and they try to adjust for each other. And the, the more full it becomes, you can see people move around. So there's an appropriate distance to stand in and there's a pro appropriate sound to create inside of a 
inside of an elevator. So there are rules and those rules can be observed and those rules are between us. They're not in us in that sense. And the access to them is to look between us humans and not at one singular individual or the aggregate of the opinions of those individuals. Is this very much like the third principle in the book, the savanna and not the zoo? The idea that you you need to see things in the wild and, and not in kind of the structured focus groups in the labs? Yes. Yeah, I mean, an example I don't, I don't think I have in the book is behavioral economics, right? So, which has been fashionable for 10 years now since Kahneman wrote his otherwise, I mean, brilliant book about thinking fast and slow. The behavioral economics is based on a set of experiments, often with the professor's students, uh, which is in itself a very limited sample, where they get to choose between a couple of things. So would you buy this wine if it was $5 versus $7 and so on? And that's not how we shop, <laughs> you know? So, so they, they isolate a situation away from the savannah you know, away from the context, away from the background that we're familiar with towards a situation where we make rational choices between, you know, transparent options, which is absolutely not how we behave in the world. So the same thing is with focus groups or surveys or many other things that they have this problem in, in them methodologically. So yes, it's a third kind of knowledge, right? So the first kind would be inner so you would know if you hurt your foot if you knock your foot against the, the door you would know and i i'm not it's not appropriate for me to challenge you on whether it hurts or not so that's a sort of an inner kind of of knowledge and that's sub you can call it subjective right um, the second kind would be objective so that would be 76 percent voted for someone or um Last month, we sold uh, 16,000 units of product X. Um, that's objective knowledge. But then, but then there is this third kind, which is intersubjective, in between us. So it's neither objective nor, in that sense, uh, nor subjective in the sense that we have access to it. It just happens between us. And understanding that seems helpful if you want to understand what it's like to be a diabetic or someone that is thinking about buying a vehicle or a bicycle or something like that. And, and, and the study of the intersubjective or the third kind of knowledge between us seems to, is what I've done my whole life and what I'm interested in, what I write about, what I care about. Yeah, I'm going to keep this theme going. And uh, it sounds like this is leading us to the second principle, which is thick data not thin data, which is, could you describe the difference between the two different forms of data? Yes. The classic example is a wink, like you wink at someone. That is, you could describe that as muscular movements that closes one eye uh, of a human body. That would be thin kind of data. And that can be recorded with machines or you know, we could observe people doing that and we can count how many times they do it or how fast they do it. Now that's thin data. Thick data would be understanding what it means. So, and, this, and observing what it means. So a wink between two people can be ironic in the sense 
of saying, I know what I said isn't true or what somebody else says isn't true. It can be humorous in the sense that it points out something in the context you're in. It can be flirtatious in the sense that it shows someone that you pay particular attention to them. It can be negative in the sense that you say by doing that, that the other one is wrong about what they're saying, or you dislike whatever opinion they have. And, and you, we could go on about that. So understanding a wink, not as muscular movements, but as meaning saturated with meaning between people that explains what is, happens in a situation. Describing that is thick data. And in anthropology, it's called thick description. So describing the meaning of something in a situation. And yet, I haven't seen machines that can do that. Uh, maybe somehow we will get there, but that is important. Which kind of wink it is. Right. Do, do you think we're potentially going to get there or are starting to show some progress in that direction? Because specifically, I think of Cambridge Analytica and the idea that they could track your phone to see how fast you were walking, to see how anxious you are, and they could see what things you liked to see if you had certain proclivities. And altogether, those things feel like they start to become thick data and in fact it was argued you know that brexit and trump were results of this kind of thick data being used for the first time potentially thick data being used for the first time to kind of um exploit the the needs or the wants that people didn't know they had as you mentioned earlier but that was a very um important part of their decision making process let's take the walking Mm -hmm. when you walk fast isn't it as likely to be because you're excited because you're busy you need to go get your kids because your day is condensed with lots of great things or it could be you're nervous or or you know so the interpretation of that seems important and as i understand cambridge analytica that's not what they did they did micro targeting that was better than broad kind of marketing, like putting things in, uh, you know, taking out a whole page in New York Times compared to spending that money on direct targeting at particular people. So I think, I think Cambridge Analytica, once you get closer to it, is less impressive than the story about it. Um, and I think if it is, if it worked, it's because there were people interpreting, right? We still need humans interpreting. And then if that's the case, then it's just an awesome statistically, statistical or um, data collection machine in order to have statistical evidence for doing something or other. Um, but in the end, to understand the thickness of it, you need a human. Um, are we closer? I think so. I, you know, I think there's progress all the time that are, that's exciting and interesting and philosophically, there's a lot at stake philosophically. But, you know, if you want to, if you want to formulate a new Turing test, like the, the Turing test is that, you know, you wouldn't know whether it's a machine or a human when you see the output of something, of a of a computer. I think the real tour, next, next Turing test would be if a computer had awe 
you know, experienced awe of something or experienced social anxiety or was startled by something, right? If a, if a, if a computer or a deep learning, you know, system was startled by some event, then that would be, you know, impressive and, 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 and something new. So I haven't seen that yet. Um, no, that would but be only then, <laughs> Yeah, only then, you know, can you say that we are, that, that the machine are like us? Because then it really has human characteristics. If a computer starts caring about something, like really caring about it, then we might be closer. And, and we might be getting closer to that. I, I, I don't understand all that, but. Yeah, so one concern of mine with, I guess, the struggle between the humanities and algorithms is that it feels like in a lot of ways, algorithms favor profit at the expense of, of human potential and, and self-actualization and, and suffering even really. And that the humanities in some ways brings attention to things like awe, like empathy, like um, thick data, you know, things like passion. Um, do you think we're at a place right now where we're potentially favoring the profit side of things too much in a way that is really costing us important aspects of our humanity? I mean, humans designed those algorithms with a profit motive mm -hmm. so so there's something very human about it i mean profit motive is pretty human um is it are are the most advanced technology serving the purpose of optimizing profit i i certainly think so and i think the people that have the most advanced access to these things are companies or company related company sponsored institutions or labs and so on so of course there is that i'm not against profits actually i think i think the profit motive is a natural part of running a you know a commercial institution and i and i think there are very good reasons to have capital markets and commercial institutions to make things for us um, but could we use these technologies for other purposes that we don't use them for right now. Absolutely. Are we training the algorithms well and in a nuanced way in order to do some of the things we talk about here? Not enough. Um, but that you can make a machine that can help out in surgery is a good thing, I think. Uh, that we could be more, much more, that we can run vast data sets in ways we couldn't do before in order to solve major diseases. You know, thank you very much. I take that. So, so it's a mix. I, there shouldn't be a struggle between humanities and, and computer science. We, there will always will be, but there should be less of it. And if we get that to work some places and then more places and then even more, we could make better, better things. Um, and we could make better, we could have better machines than we have today. And I'm yeah. sure it'll happen. It'll have to happen. You mentioned, I believe, on the um, Red Associates website that traditional tools are 
useful when tomorrow looks like yesterday, the typical, you know, evolution uh, argument. Can you give examples of what some of the traditional tools are that you feel like are failing us right now? And maybe any ideas of like the new tools that you think would be really beneficial? Um, economics is notoriously bad at predicting um, and is using mathematical models based on assumptions that if you are interested in humans are obviously completely wrong most of the time. Um, and I think we guide our economic system with statistical models and computer models that are uh, uninformed or ill-informed about human activity um, and based on a set of assumptions that serves the purpose of the models rather than the society in which the, the society the models should be placed in. I think epidemiology, this is controversial, I think, but epidemiology lives in a silo in the same way as, an, as economics does, which means that we made a lot of decisions the last two years that didn't take into account our children's you know, learning and what happens when a whole generation is hit like it was and didn't take into account that you know, 30 million people lost their jobs within a couple of weeks and the kind of suffering and death and you know things that happen when we do that so this ability of synthesizing several kinds of data into one insight seems to be the problem with many models and without human interpretation that cuts across several silos we end up making siloed decisions and that's what i mean by old systems that that you that you have one epistemology and one data set and one way of building mathematical models and one way of careers in in you know of of, of promoting of getting promotions and becoming you know what you want to be in life comes through very old systems and and um that isn't always good um, yeah so as we come to our time here, what what kind of future do you want to see with these things? If you could kind of wave a magical wand and, and transform the strategy or consulting or business and data world, what kind of things are you fighting for that you want to see happen to kind of move us in a, a direction that you think is better? I would like a philosopher in the room when Adobe decides what it does with their new tools to um, synthesize uh, human speech. I think it's important that we have people that understand what truth is and what civics are and how children learn when we do something like that. When it happens to video, certainly. Um, when you what happens when you democratize deep fakes so that it's on everybody's laptop? I think that is important that we have philosophers. I think it's important that Microsoft has philosophers in the room when they experiment with storing data in biological matter. I think that's important. I think having philosophers in the room with the, you know, the human biome or when we decide mobility systems for the future. So I'd very much like that the most advanced 
technology labs have um, people with, not necessarily philosophers, but people with philosophical inclinations that can raise the stakes and understand not just negatively in terms of mitigating risk, but also creatively pushing it forward. Um, I think if you ask the social media companies whether they would have liked one of those in the beginning when they made decisions, I think they would have liked that. I think they would have thought that would be helpful and they would have not ended up in a front of a congressional panel being asked why they ruined the last election. Um, so not that philosophy is the answer of everything, but as I think certainly it is one answer. Um, so I'd like, if I could wave a wand, like you said, I'd, I'd like there to be philosophically inclined, sophisticated philosophically inclined people in the labs of the technologies that are going to define the next, you know, 20 years of our lives and, and, and have completely, completely changed the way we experience the world. So I think, I think that would be my wish. I love it. That's a good wish. Well, before we wrap up here, Christian, is there anything that you would like to point our listeners to or share anything that you've been working on or want to talk about and uh, promote before we call this? The conversation about singularity, the conversation about when humans and machines, if humans and machines will become one, should have... Um, a, a variety of sciences involved in the conversation. And I think you have that um, when, you, when you talk about singularity, but I think it's, it's one of those topics where that is crucial to how we think about the world and certainly something that billions of dollars are being invested towards. I think there should be a sophisticated discussion about that. So, so thank you for you know, discussing that and bringing that. Um, but certainly a place like, a place that are thinking about singularity ought to have many types of scientific input. Um, and um, on the other hand, the humanities and the social sciences that could provide that input ought to invite the questions that are raised by technology way more than they do today um, because we need them. So I think that would be my plug that yeah. that happens. I love that. I mean, that's the exact reason this podcast exists is to explore the, the social sciences and philosophical implications of the singularity. So I appreciate that. Christian, thank you so much for joining us, man. Thank you. It was delightful. <laughs>